So, good morning again. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We started the Gospel of Mark on Easter, and we just continue week by week through the Gospel of Mark because, as we talked about last week, we are truth-grounded. We want the Scriptures to speak to us, so we just go through the Scriptures verse by verse and hear what it has to say to us each week. Now, the title of this sermon is, Do You Lilo? Do You Lilo? Which I know is absolutely gibberish. Uh, to probably everybody in this room. But by the end of the day, the phrase, do you Lilo, I hope will become one of the easiest ways for you to grasp the gospel and understand what is the mission here of Renew EPC. We want you to understand what the word Lilo is today because we believe that's what the scriptures are going to be teaching us today as well. So what is Lilo? Lilo is a summary of our mission statement, where we help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. Lilo are the letters for live in and live out. And so when we say Lilo, we're in a really short, abbreviated way asking, are you living in and are you living out the good news of Jesus Christ? I believe that Lilo is really the Bible's vision of the good life. The good life is the life that is living in and living out the good life. Now, the reason why that's uh, so important for us to grasp is because whether or not you would say, I Lilo, or not, I submit and suggest that everyone in this room is seeking to live the good life. I don't know many people who are uh, charging after the mediocre life or charging after the not exciting life, or charging after the really crummy life. Those are not the lives that we seek. We are all seeking the good life. And I believe probably every single one of us has an answer in our heart, whether even we have gotten to the bottom of it and, and heard uh, and, and asked ourselves of it or not, we still have in our heart an answer to the question, what is the good life? And our lives are just sort of bending itself towards that life. So uh, I've been reading an important leadership book uh, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, very famous book. And he has this passage that kind of relates to this whole idea uh, where he says at one point that it's incredibly easy to get caught up in an activity trap in the busyness of life, to work harder and harder at climbing the ladder of success only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. If the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us in the wrong place faster. That's such an evocative image that our life is a ladder that we are climbing We are progressing, but the real important question is, what wall have we leaned our ladder against? What wall is your ladder leaning against? If if you are just kind of living life, there is a kind of standard vision for the ladder of life that has been articulated by a a famous psychologist named uh, Maslow, And he developed this hierarchy of needs, which is basically a ladder, all right? This ladder of of progressing from from one need to the next need until you finally get 
to the top. So you start by dealing with your physiological needs. You need your, your sense of home, your sense of food, your sense of, of, of safety all matched. And then you, you move up into more relational needs. You need to feel like you belong. You need to feel like you're known, that you're liked. And then you move up into these kind of personal esteem um, uh, uh, needs where you, you feel like you're, you're valuable and you're significant and you're, you're a contributor. And then finally, uh, you get to uh, what, what Maslow describes as our self-actualization. Self-actualization is where you finally become all that your heart has, has said that you are to be. You are self-actualized. You are fulfilled. You are complete. You are living in your, in your greatest potential. And that's kind of the ladder that, that we all are, are, are living in. That's the world's ladder. Let me give you another version of Maslow's ladder. It's called follow your dreams. Have you, have you, have you heard uh, every person in the Olympics, every winner of an Academy Award, whenever they say, how did you get here? How did you get to this high point? And the, the boiled down message that we want to do is to follow our dreams. Follow our dreams is self-actualization. Now, here's what I want you to, to consider. What is the center? What is the wall that those very common ladders are leaning against? Those ladders are leaning against the self, living for self. Self-actualization is the pinnacle of the secular life. That is the wall that we lean against. And so that's what you are are coming into from the world. Lean your ladder against the, the wall of self and live for self. But Jesus comes on the scene and he starts announcing there is a different wall that you need to be leaning against. He comes in to the world to say, repent and believe in the good news. Be part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus presents this position that there are two visions of the good life. There is the wall that we can be living for self, or there is the wall that he proposes that we can be living for God. Today's text is all about telling us that the good life is the life that is living for the kingdom of God. So I want to really, as we go through this passage, pose two questions. How do we live for the kingdom of God? And why is living for the kingdom of God the true vision of the good life? So let's really deal with how do we live for the kingdom of God. And the answer to how we live for the kingdom of God is we Lilo. What's Lilo stand for? See how easy this is? You just learned our mission statement, and we're only five minutes in, right? What's Lilo is we live in and live out. Now, you might be saying, you know, I already uh, have my ladder against the wall of, of, of God. I'm already living for God. Why, why do I need such a message like this today? Well, I can tell you I need this message. Because as soon as I leave here this morning, I am going to go out into this world and be pressured and tempted with a thousand messages about living for self. And it won't be before Monday morning that most of my work is stepping up the ladder of living for self. So the reason that we need this, even if we have lived in the gospel most of our life, 
is that there is this undertow constantly calling us back to living for self. Now, it may also be true that you are just not really in the gospel. You're living the good life. You're feeling uh, very close to self-actualization. You feel like your, your hierarchy of needs is, is going well. Why, why would you want to listen to this today? Well, you're after the good life. So let me just academically propose to you, what if there was a better way to live than the life that you've been trained to live, than the goal that you've been been called to pursue? What if there is a better way to live? All I ask is for your ears to consider whether living for God could potentially be better than living for self. So what does it mean to Lilo? We're going to see in in our passage today uh, two main points. First of all, to, to, to Lilo means that we live in the good news by making it our core identity. We live in the good news by making it our core identity. Jesus uh, comes out of the the baptism and the temptation, and he bursts on the scene to say uh, that the time has been fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe in the gospel. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, to state it as simply as possible, is God's righteous rule. The kingdom of God is where God is ruling. Now, when we, when we think about the word righteousness, that's, that's not a word that we're getting uh, thrown around very often. And often, if we, if we think about what righteous sounds like, it sounds like uh, holier than thou. Sounds like stuffy. Sounds like uh, people that, that just walk around better than everyone else. And so, when you hear this idea of the kingdom of God, you might be picturing those people who just kind of cluck, cluck, cluck at everybody and all the things that they're doing wrong, and it it has this taste in your mouth of, well, who'd want to be one of those people, right? I think I'm one of those people? Come on. No, um, that's not what the kingdom of God looks like. Where the kingdom of God is, where God's rule is manifest, is a place where we are told in Scripture is love and joy peace and goodness and kindness and self-control, all of these things are what we find where the kingdom of God is ruling. Would you not want to be in the center of a life that is marked by love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness? That's, That's where the kingdom of God is. Now, where the kingdom of God comes, evil and injustice and sin is expelled. So all of the things that disturb love, joy, and peace, goodness, and kindness, they don't belong in the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God pushes them out. And when we go through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to see this happen through things like exorcisms, where demons are thrown out, and healing, where we find that sickness is not part of the kingdom of God, where, see, sin is is dealt with through forgiveness, We see death does not belong in the kingdom of God, and so it is reversed through resurrection. The kingdom of God we will watch in the Gospel of Mark is wherever Jesus is. So Jesus is the kingdom of God. Now to kind of give you an image of of how the kingdom of God works in this world, how it 
how it deals with dangers and threats and unrighteousness and sin. Uh, of course, you have to think about one of my favorite movies, and don't bring it up yet. Don't. Yeah. All right. The Lion King. We'll get there. We'll get there. The Lion King. So there's this, there's this sweet little lion named Simba who's going to become the lion someday, and he finds himself in this, uh, this realm where the kingdom of his father hasn't come. It's the elephant burial ground, and it is filled with nasty hyenas and dangerous things. And Simba gets himself and his, his girl in danger where all of these hyenas are now saying, we have you. You're, you're in our clutches, and they're going to do terrible things. And so Simba tries to deliver himself from the scare, and he growls. He lets out this really puny little, ah, right, small growl. And they laugh at him. But then a bigger growl comes. Mufasa, the father of Simba, shows up in this land of darkness and unrighteousness, and he lets out a father-filled rage, wrath, and righteous-filled roar for the sake of his son. And the hyenas begin to quiver and be terrified. Now, right. That is a picture of the kingdom of God coming into the realm of darkness. That which opposes righteousness, that which opposes his children, God's children, is, uh, receives the anger and the righteousness of God expelling them. That is what happens when the kingdom of God comes. The places of darkness become places where God takes over. And whatever does not belong with God runs. So you see, Jesus comes into the wilderness, comes into our world as the lion who roars and drives away evil. Isn't that good news? That's wonderful news. We don't need any more hyenas, right? But, but what, what if just by chance there's a little hyena in you? What if you're not entirely a lion? What if, what if you're a hyena at heart? Is the kingdom of God good news? So, uh, James writes a letter in uh, the, the New Testament, and he describes a little bit about uh, the heart. And he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So you see, the, 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 the hyena spirit, the, the spirit of unrighteousness, has desires that are out of control, has a kingdom of self mentality, covets, desires things that are not theirs, and schemes to try and get what doesn't belong to them. And the way that that, that comes out is that we fight and we quarrel. Does that maybe describe, is there a spirit fighting, and quarreling that shows up in you. Perhaps, hypothetically, you're, you're driving home from work, 
you're tired, you just want to get home, and somebody cuts you off in their car. And you just say, I want to pray for that person. Right? My heart is overflowing with a desire for their blessing. No, that's not exactly what happens in our heart. When we are in our cars, masters of our little kingdom, and somebody does something against us, we let out quarrelsome thoughts and fighting thoughts. And so what do we discover if we're really honest about ourselves? We find that that we're not all righteous. There's a lot in our hearts that belongs with the hyenas. And so what what do we do when we find out in our self-examination, my heart has some hyena in it? Well, that is why Jesus announces the kingdom of God with the word repent. Repentance is a key part of the message of receiving the kingdom of God. So what is repentance? There's a lot of wrong pictures about repentance. Maybe you think of those people who flagellate themselves or who practice self-hatred or who are killjoys. I mean, the last person you want in the party is the one that's repenting. Um, the, the, the person who, uh, if they're repenting, they're always missing out. They're never, they're never in the fun place. That, that's the picture that we have for repentance. But that is not the picture that the Bible paints for repentance. Here's what, here's what the Bible tells us repentance is. Repentance is simply taking your ladder from the wrong wall to the right wall. Repentance is simply turning around. There are two aspects to to biblical repentance. The, The first is that we recognize that we are headed in a wrong direction. We recognize that if, if we continue to dwell like hyenas, when the kingdom of God comes, that's a disaster. And so we want to turn from bad. And maybe the best picture that I can think of for turning from bad is, is from another movie I love called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Anybody seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? So there's this, there's this wonderful scene where they're driving in the middle of the night trying to get home, and they get turned around, and, they drive, and, and Del Griffith and Neil Page are driving down the interstate going the wrong direction, going 70 miles an hour in the wrong direction. So there's another car that comes up alongside, and they see these, these people driving the wrong direction on the interstate, and they yell out, very, very unsympathetically, you're going the wrong way. Do you know what Del Griffith and Neil Page do when they're being told you're going the wrong way? They say, that, that guy's drunk. <laughs> How does he know where we're going? <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very funny scene. But here's the thing. When we are going the wrong direction, it is loving for somebody to yell, you're going the wrong way, Right? And a lot of times when somebody is telling us you're going the wrong way, rather than hearing we're going the wrong way, we make fun of the people who are trying to help us. But repentance is turning away from a certainly dangerous situation, going the wrong way on the interstate. But it's not just turning from the bad way, it's turning to the good. My favorite picture of repentance in all of Scripture is the picture of the reunion of the prodigal son to the father. See, the prodigal son decided that he wanted to live in the kingdom of self. And he went off into the far country, and he spent all of his money, and he ran out, and he began to live in squalor. And he comes to his place where he realizes that 
my life as a servant in my father's house is better than what I have here. I am fighting pigs for food. And so he recognizes that he wants to go home. And he is planning to go home and, and, and is planning to, to, to be put in the out, outhouse and not treated very well. But instead, when he comes home, his father runs out and wraps his arms around him and hugs him and welcomes him home and makes a beautiful banquet. That's the picture of repentance. Repentance is turning away from something that is destroying you and being brought, wrapped in the arms of a father who loves you more intensely than you can imagine to be a guest of honor in his beautiful feast. That is repentance. We need that image in our mind when we hear the word repent. What does it mean then to believe? Jesus says, repent and believe in the good news. We must make sure that we don't water down Jesus' meaning of believe. Because there's a lot of people who will say in this world, uh, I believe in Jesus. But if, if their belief in Jesus were really examined, it's simply that they have heard of Jesus, that they know the story of Jesus, But that's not quite what Jesus is saying when he says, believe in the good news. You see, there is is knowledge of Jesus. There is agreement that Jesus is who he says he is. But those two things by themselves, that's not what makes a person a believer. What makes a person a believer is trust. Knowing who Jesus is, agreeing with what Jesus has said about himself, and then personally trusting that Jesus is your Savior. Uh, Imagine one of these chairs. I know that's a chair. I agree that that chair is designed to hold my weight. But I have not actually trusted that chair until I sit in it. Right? That is the picture of belief. And so when we live in the good news by making it our core identity, we are saying that you believe most fundamentally about yourself, that you are a citizen of the kingdom, that you trust in Jesus, that Jesus is the center of your life. That is what living in the good news means. Now, there is an error that can fall upon a lot of people, and I think it comes to a lot of people in, in our American context, and that is this. You can make Jesus a rung on your ladder. But he's not actually the end. What does it mean that Jesus is the rung on a ladder? He's a step towards where you want to go. And so there are some people who think Jesus is a step to their vision of a great America. There are some people who think Jesus is a step to them being wealthy or healthy. There are people who think Jesus is a step to them having a happy family. But that is not what Jesus is calling us to. He is not calling us to treat him as a step towards the kingdom of self. He is calling us to make him our whole ladder. Every step we take is in Jesus, holding on to Jesus, going deeper into our relationship with Jesus. So when you think about 
living in the kingdom of God? Do you have a Jesus who has a rung to your ladder? Or do you have a Jesus who is your ladder? Jesus is not a part of our life. He is our life. Do you live in the good news of Jesus? So if we we, we live in, then what is living out? We live out the good news by making it our primary purpose. We make the good news our primary purpose. So Jesus has gone out, he's announced the good news, and then he takes the good news to the Sea of Galilee where he sees a couple people who are fishing, and he calls them to follow him. And do you, do you have any, like, surprise at where the kingdom of God begins? He doesn't rush to Facebook or to CNN or to any number. He doesn't go to Rome. He goes to the Sea of Galilee, and he picks the stinky fishermen, and he says, I'm starting this movement of the kingdom of God with you, untrained, probably cussing, uh, uh, uncouth, uh, worm and fish-gutted fingers. Those are the people that I'm starting my kingdom with. I, I find that to be such a beautiful thought. There is nobody who is outside of the call of the kingdom of God. God desires to build his kingdom with the most ordinary and the least extraordinary. Everyone is offered the good news of the kingdom of God. So are your ears open? In this scene, we we really get uh, our attention drawn to the authority of Jesus' call and to the power of Jesus' call. And I want to talk about the authority of Jesus' call uh, briefly by first recognizing that it is Jesus' call that initiates. We don't have any words from these disciples. Jesus speaks. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. There was no uh, uh, effort taken by any of these uh, original fishermen to come to Jesus, to ask Jesus, to consider Jesus. All we have is Jesus saying, follow me. So Jesus initiates. He is the one who comes, who speaks, and our responsibility is to answer. The second thing we see about the authority of Jesus' call is that it supersedes. It is a superseding call. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to make him number one. And we see that these fishermen immediately drop their nets. And, what, and, and, and uh, John and, and uh, uh, James, they leave their father. Those two things communicate that Jesus is above our family relationships. Jesus is above our career. <laughs> Jesus is above everything that we find Valuable. Our livelihood is submitted to him. Our family lives are submitted to him. Everything is brought underneath our relationship to Jesus. Jesus' word has first allegiance in our life. Now, the passage illustrates dramatically the call of Jesus. And, and for those who, who maybe like to go fishing, I don't want you to fear that maybe you'll go out fishing and all of a sudden you'll disappear for three years. That's probably not the story that's going to happen to most of us. When Jesus calls ordinarily, he is not calling us to leave our lives, but to reorder our lives. The purpose of Jesus' call is is to say, 
Now I am number one in your plans. Now I am number one in your marriage. Now I am number one in your responsibility of parenting. I am the first uh, concern in your life in every area. So when Jesus calls, how is Jesus first? There's a, a, a pastor named uh, David Platt who, who says this on this passage. The gospel evokes unconditional surrender of all that we are and all that we have to all that he is. You and I desperately need to consider whether we have ever truly, authentically trusted in Christ for our salvation. Have you received a call from Jesus that has reordered your life, that has superseded all other claims to number one? That is responding to the authority of Jesus' call. I really want to dwell on the power of Jesus' call. He comes to these four scraggly, stinky men, and he says, follow me. And I want you to consider what those words did to these four ordinary, fish-stinking men. It does three things. Jesus' call makes our life meaningful. Jesus' call makes our life meaningful. I think it is so fascinating that Jesus comes to fishermen and he says, I am going to make you fishers of men. Do you see what Jesus' call does? John and Peter and Andrew and James, they had been living their lives in an ordinary job that seemed to be just going nowhere, that was just what their dad was doing. It felt like it had nothing but... It provides me food, and it provides me money. What is the point? The point is it's my job. But Jesus comes and says, the way that you have been made, I am going to take and I am going to fulfill what you have been made for. Your learning how to fish has made you the perfect person to become a fisher of men. You see, it, it, it is Jesus' call tells us that our lives have been scripted and structured so that they will glorify God. There are not accidents. There are not mundane details. All of it is being brought under Jesus' call to say, what I have made you as is going to be how you are going to serve me and glorify me. All of you is meaningful in my call. You want to know what my very first job was? I was a carnival barker. I was at Worlds of Fun. I was the age, weight, and birthday guesser, which means that I spent eight hours a day with a microphone making fun of people uh, and trying to get them to give me money. Now, what has happened? Well, I'm not guessing your weight anymore. I'm not looking at your age, although you'd be afraid to know what goes through my head. But you can't lose that expertise. You just can't. Wives love it. Um, but, but Jesus took that training that was completely, I mean, that was for a summer job. And he built that into what my call was, which was to be a preacher. And so I am, my life is meaningful from those sweaty days learning how to gather a crowd to now becoming a pastor. It's all of a whole. It's all of a piece. 
When we live for the kingdom of self, do we experience that sort of meaning? Meaning is having to be created all the time. It's, it's being, having to be pushed against the darkness. But in the kingdom of God, you discover all that you are matters and is meaningful. I, I, I love the, the, the words of Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How desperately does our our world today need to know that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, that every one of their days has purpose and meaning in it because it was tenderly created and planned by a heavenly Father. That is what you experience when Jesus calls you. Second, Jesus' call makes our life purposeful. Jesus says to these men, I will make you become fishers of men. When we live in the kingdom of self, we wake up most days, we look at our our lives, and we're like, what's it all for? What's it add up to? What's it mean? But when we respond to the call of the kingdom, we recognize that we are part of a plan. Most of us live in this world as managers of chaos just trying to keep the plate spinning. But when Jesus calls us, he makes us missionaries of change. Do you know what a noble mission it is to take the good news of Jesus into this world? Nothing changes this world more dramatically and more perfectly than when the good news goes into someone's heart. It changes everything. I came to be a pastor here at one time when I had lost everything of a pastor. I, I, I ended my last pastorate in the middle of 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, and when I, I, I left that pastorate, I went from somebody who thought I had a call on my life to, to wondering, what's it all for? I went to complete zero. And the only thing that I had for months was this scripture in Romans 11, 29, which told me the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's that's all I had. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. How is God going to fulfill that promise now that I have come to nothing? I don't have a church anymore. I don't have a place anymore. I don't have a a, a, a family around me anymore? How is God going to keep his promise of the call of my life? He's the God of resurrection. This church was brought into existence partly because God still had a call on my life. His call is irrevocable. You see, when Jesus calls us and said, I will make you become You will have difficult days. You will have valleys. You will have days that don't make sense. But Jesus has said you will become, and therefore you will become. Your life is purposeful. Your life has a goal. 
your life will matter because Jesus has called that life. A third, the third power of Jesus' call is that it makes our lives selfless. It makes our lives selfless. In contrast to a world that is committed to self and selfishness, Jesus says that his disciples will be fishers of men. Do you recognize that the focus of our life is not self? It is others. We are committed to giving our lives for the sake of others. The kingdom of self, if we're really honest, is a ladder. That As we climb that ladder, as we pursue self-actualization, as we pursue our dreams, we will sacrifice people to get those dreams. A great movie came out about five years ago called uh, La La Land. Has anybody seen La La Land? Okay, I've given, I've given you a great list. You've got to see these movies. Now, La La Land is, is this beautiful movie of these, these two wonderful people, Sebastian and Mia, and they have a love between each other that is for the ages. But they also have dreams. One has the dream of being a jazz musician. One has the dream of being an actress. But they have the kind of love that movies are made for. I mean, the, 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 the love sparkles and crackles, and it's It's beautiful. But the movie ends, not with these two together and happy, but separate. The reason is that they chose their own dreams rather than the love they had before. You see, the message of follow your dreams has within it this idea that I can do better, that I deserve better, that I owe it to myself to be happy. And I have seen those messages destroy marriages, destroy families, destroy careers, because follow your dreams has turned into selfishness and a selfishness that destroys. The kingdom of self boils down to this message, your life for me. But Jesus came and calls us to a life that is selfless. The message of the kingdom of God is not my life, uh, your life for mine, but my life for yours. The message of the kingdom is not about getting, but giving. My life for yours is the gospel. My life for yours is the gospel. Consider Jesus says to these disciples, Follow me. Follow him where? Where is Jesus headed? Jesus is walking steadily and surely to the cross, for he is going to lay down his life. For who? For us. John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you see the key verb of the gospel is gave. God gave the life of his son. It was his life for ours. And that is the gospel. God gave his son that we might have life that is meaningful and purposeful and selfless. 
So why give your life to the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God is the life that we want. Isn't your heart saying, I want a life that is meaningful and purposeful and that gets itself spent for others? The kingdom of God offers us the life that we want. The good life is not about following your dreams. It's about following Him. The good life is found when we find and when we give our life to the one who gave His life for us. So we live in the good news by making it our core identity, and we live out the good news by making it our primary purpose. Do you, Lilo? Do you live in and live out the good news of Jesus? We, we have a, a basket in the back of wristbands that say, Do you, Lilo, on them? This is a great way to make sure this message doesn't end today, but that you can remind yourself of it throughout the week. I want to leave you with this. The gospel is not something that we listen to or believe in once upon a time. It's something that we live in. The gospel calls you to believe in it today. Not just yesterday, but today. Today, Jesus calls you to follow him. Friend, Jesus is calling you. Repent. Believe in the gospel. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you that you have given us a life that is greater than ourselves, a life that is meaningful and purposeful, and a life that calls us to give ourselves away. Father, we have this life because your son gave his life for us. But Father, I pray that as as we sit here today and as we consider the words, follow me, we hear your call to repent and believe in the gospel. Father, where are you calling us to follow? Where do you need to be made number one? Where do we need to repent and return to your loving arms? Where do we need to believe? Where do we need to put our trust fully in you? Father, we pray, help us to live in and live out the good news of Jesus. For that is the life we were created for. It is the good life because your son purchased it for us.